Hello, and welcome to Be an Instructional Design Rockstar with Blair Stamper. I'm really excited about this month's podcast because it is the first time that I got to sit down and interview someone I actually work with on a daily basis. So this episode is with Corey Trosclair. He is an online media designer at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And he has a really unique role because he's part media person, but he's also part instructional designer. And so we work on a daily basis to be able to bring engaging media opportunities to our online courses that not only make the courses, and I'm not going to use the word fun, but more engaging for students in a meaningful way. So we're not putting media in for media's sake. Instead, we really work hard to put media in that actually enhances the learning and ensures that students are able to get access to the content in unique ways. So his story is really unique in the uh, position that he is right in right now and has some really great tidbits of how to get into that position, but also the really cool um, projects that he's actually worked on. So let's hop into the interview. Um, so, Corey, thank you for hopping on to the Being Structural Design Rockstar podcast. Um, I'm super excited to have this conversation because I think you and I are a lot alike in our backgrounds, but also our love for multimedia and making courses engaging. So to start us off, I always start with that really age old fun interview question of just tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, Blair, let me start with uh, thank you for having me on. Um, it's ever since I heard that you had this, it's been kind of fun, and I kind of hoped that this would happen. But you never want to ask or have expectations, so it's cool to be here uh, first. Uh, but I'm uh, my name is Corey Trostler. I'm a current position is called online media designer. I've also been what they call an instructional media designer, which are both basically the same thing. Um, I deal with the instructional design side of putting media into courses and where it's appropriate and determining what to use and how to do it and building it and really all the aspects of it. Um, other things about me, I like to read. I enjoy uh, playing video games, which is a lot of my background for the gamification that I kind of use in my everyday job. Uh, I like to do a lot of traveling and with that eating food that comes with the traveling. So those are most of my hobbies. Um, I have a dog and a cat and um, also married to an instructional designer. So that's how that goes. Like a family of instructional designers. It, it does feel that way. Um, I have my work family of instructional designers and my home family of instructional designers. And uh, funny anecdote, um, I was at, uh, at my dad's house in Louisiana and he's like a, he's like a like fix anything kind of guy, very mechanical, um, was a roofer for a while, but what he really is is a problem solver, I came to realize. And I went in and I gave him I gave him a problem we had at work where it was like, hey, how do you solve this calculus issue with an asynchronous class? What would you do? And he came back and he was like, well, I would do it like this, 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 and this. And I would set it up in these ways. And I was like, that's completely different than the way I set it up, but that would also work. And so him and I just talked, well, he has no background in any of this, right? But it's just, you're a problem solver. And I also like to think that that's what we all kind of do here. We're really good problem solvers. And that's what, that's what makes the job fun. And that's what makes it work. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's what a lot of people miss uh, are the soft skills of instructional design and problem solving is 100% one of those. 
Um, okay. So we talked a little bit about, um, kind of the fun things you like to do, like eating, traveling, but what's your academic and scholarly background? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. Um, so I originally started, uh, I, I did what every 18 year old does and that's go to the big local college that all your friends are going to, and you don't know what you want to do. So instead you go into debt into college money. And so we did that for three years, uh, realized that, um, went through a couple degree programs, didn't like any of them, um, ended up in education, uh, and the college I currently went to didn't, um, have a, like, a very, not, not a good program, but it wasn't like the focus of why you go here. You don't go there for education. Um, and so I went to a smaller school and what ended up, and they are the focus, they are focused on education. So what ended up happening was I went there, um, four years, finally, after three years. So a nice seven year bachelor degree that everybody enjoys, um, met my wife there also. And, uh, my undergrad ended up being in a secondary education specifically for middle school history. Um, out of that, uh, got a job at my old middle school where I went um, for one year. They didn't want a history teacher, so I had to learn science. And I've never taught history, even though it's my first degree. So, um, you know, eventually moved up to um, North Carolina, Charlotte, for a master's program for my wife. And then a couple of years later, I ended up taking a similar kind of program because she did instructional design. And she was telling me about it every day. And I was like, I do that in my classroom, but I also have to teach with like a rigorous schedule. And I don't like the schedule part, but I like the design part. And so I ended up going online for my master's about two years. And for some reason, when you're 27 versus 18, uh, school's a lot easier. I, that could just be me, but maybe like a maturity thing. I'm not quite sure, but I found it very fun and easy. And I enjoyed all the aspects of instructional design. And uh, that's basically where that ended. Um, scholarly there are some things in teaching where there were programs like um where charlotte has a it's called cti charlotte teachers institute where you would come in be paired with a professor from a local university and you would develop an entire lesson in your classroom that needed work and then yale would publish papers for it and so i did that for two years which kind of also led to my like that was like creative building, but also writing a nice long paper. And then you can just say, hey, Yale published it. So uh, it was all that. And that kind of led to the where we're at. So um, that's where I've been at to get here, though. I've only been in this current position for about 18 months, just so everyone knows. I um, was a public school teacher for about uh, a decade. That's awesome. And to go along with what you said about um, when you're 27 versus 18, and going through a master's program versus an undergrad, I almost sometimes, I've been thinking a lot about like, why don't we really focus on undergrad online degrees? And I wonder if that's why, because when you're older, you're more of a self-starter, you don't need that um, on-campus experience as much, but um, I completely agree with you. It's a completely different experience going to college later in life than right when you're 18. Now I could talk about that all day too. Um, maybe we'll get into it a little bit later, but just the idea that a bachelor's program is your, it's also the, the like highest influx of students and how many students are going to actually be affected by the content you're creating and helping faculty with. And so that's where ID work should like focus initially always, because you're going to reach the most students there and then you can kind of ramp it up. It's also, um, the material is definitely going to be a different kind of like feel like academically of 
maybe more memorize as opposed to like explore this theory with your classmates. So it's, it's also easier for an ID to kind of get it done. If there are a lot of like, if there are any problems, it's much easier to solve those at the bachelor level than the masters with the doctorate level, because then the, like, you know, the, how some of the esoteric like information of like, I don't, I don't, I don't really know that much about engineering at the 8,000 level becomes uh, problematic for designing the course. All right, so you talked a little bit about already um, being a teacher for 10 years uh, and what you did before becoming a designer and online um, multimedia designer. So how do you use that prior knowledge as a teacher in your current field? So in teaching, everyone's a teacher in that field, but not necessarily everybody is there for either like rigor or enrichment of the students, or there are some people who just are kind of like, I'm a teacher, here's the material, learn the material. Um, I, after a couple years of teaching, I just slowly, I started using like gamification in class without realizing it of like, this is so boring, I hate teaching it. If I was a student, I would absolutely not care about any of this or want to learn any of it in class. And so from that perspective, I would start uh, taking inspiration from games I had played or card games or whatever. There's so many things you can pull. And I would I would change. I would we go through and I'd pick like the most boring lesson that I had for that chapter. And it would just be like, OK, this is the revamp. Let's go through and. And when you're a new teacher starting out with new material in a new state in a subject matter you didn't go to college for, um, usually the first things that you teach are kind of, here's what everybody else gave you that they already taught. And it takes you a while to kind of make it your own. And so just, I guess a lot of it's the, the gamification in my, in, my, in my teaching really led me to kind of this job. And the job I'm currently in is very unique as well. Um, there are instructional designers, but doing, pulling, seeing something and saying this would be better or this would work as well as media and a student would either be more engaged or benefit more or whatever, whatever you want to use. You can just, after a while, you can just kind of tell what engages students or what engages people in general, what people are, it's just like your rules of gamification, things like achievements or like your badging or like the feeling that you've gotten something um, that other people don't have, or you can show it off as something like an accomplishment. Um, all of those things are kind of just what I built in, in public education as I went through. And I can give thousands of examples, um, but I won't. Uh, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do one real quick. Uh, there's um. There was a, we do hydrology and students learn the water cycle from grade three to grade eight every year. So by the time they get to me in grade eight, um, they're done. They're super done. They're like, we don't want to learn the water cycle anymore, which is very understandable. Um, so we would have all these water quality indicators that the state wants them to memorize. There were seven that indicate where the water is high quality or low quality. And so it'd be like, okay, memorize the seven quality indicators. Okay, we're done. So we turned that into like a like a NFL draft of different bugs that would have different stats based on the water quality indicator. This bug has really high pH level tolerance. That's bad for water. It means it could be heavily acidic or basic, right? And so we'd give them all these cards and we'd tell them, okay, here's all the stats for all the players that you're going to need to draft. We're going to call you up one at a time and you have to tell us who you draft. And once the bug's gone, it's gone. And so then students would have to kind of mathematically figure out what their best possible drafts were all class. And at the end they would draft them. And then we had like a hidden number equivalent to each bug. And then 
the highest score would win the uh, the bioindicator draft. So that's like one example, but like that kind of stuff is what I could do in my current job all the time. And it's, it's the best. So sorry, very long winded. No, that's so cool. I mean, it's so easy just to say, okay, you got to re- memorize these seven indicators, but they're going to remember that draft later on. That's awesome. So can you give an example? Cause that was an awesome, like K-12 example, but what is uh, one way that you have either gamified or made a class more engaging in the higher ed realm. I appreciate you bringing this back to higher ed constantly. You're going to keep needing to do that because most of my life experience is in the K-12 realm. And I understand that doesn't translate to higher ed necessarily, but it kind of also does because like uh, the coolest thing we've made so far, and Blair, you know this because you're in like every meeting that I'm in and I send you stuff as soon as I make it like in early, early V01 prototype phases. But we had a project for. for a professor who teaches new teachers about teaching history. So like an education class around how do you teach history? And it came to us as just, I go to this location three hours away every year and I bring my phone and I zoom my class and I spin around and I show them and I talk about the history of this location. And it's this place they'd never heard of. And it's, it's, pretty local history. It's pretty big. And I hadn't heard of it. And other people I've talked to haven't heard of it. But in the 70s, it was this this great idea called Soul City. It didn't work out. It sounded great. They built all the infrastructure. And there were a lot of political things that caused it to kind of collapse. But she would go there every year to where it was supposed to be and where a couple people live, but it's not like the grand utopia that it should have been. And she would just, you know, scan her phone in a field and talk to them about what it is. And she was like, how do I make this better? Not even like, how do I stop going out there for three hour drive, spin around and then come back every year? But how do I make this better? I want this to be, the faculty member gave us a lot of, I want to be, I want this to be like a discovery for the students. I want them to discover what happened to Soul City. Like I want to write Soul City, what happened? And you're like, what? I have no idea what this is. So we took that. Uh, I say we, because I'm using this project in an example, because it's a great use of our team when my position um, and ID's position, so the person working with the faculty member directly, the faculty member themselves, and the people also on the media team that have more technical knowledge of like graphic design and video editing that I don't have, when all of us get to come together and kind of create this grand vision. And so we took, we took her, I want to do inquiry, and we took, let's say, um, uh, Monkey Monkey Island is a good example of like a point and click adventure where you're kind of it's like static background, but like characters move and animate into them and you can click different aspects and maybe drag things to interact with it and different things will happen depending on what you drag there. So we took that idea. We made like a standalone. Uh, imagine like an information desk uh, if you're going to like a national park and we made a pretend uh, first person view of you looking out over an information desk. And that was built in the 70s when Soul City was built. And so it's really dilapidated. It's really run down. And it's got a couple little 70s flares of like the style of the TV and the style of a Walkman. And you see this and you kind of hear a little bit of ambient noise. And it starts out with a TV coming on and playing like the Soul City trailer. And then it kind of zooms up or zooms out, I guess. And you see the whole scene and it lets you click on different aspects to interact with those pieces. And so students can go through documents and click actual documents that were part of Soul City. They can click the TV and watch either a recent documentary trailer on Soul City or the original pitch to get people to come there as well. 
Um, they can click the Walkman and listen to the 99% Invisible podcast, which does a whole 40-something minute episode on Soul City, or they can listen to a Floyd McKissick interview from like the early 90s about what happened to Soul City. So you just, you can explore all these primary um, artifacts that the teacher wants. You kind of make your own connections. And then you've also, you're also interacting and kind of directing your own journey as opposed to, let's say, reading all these articles or someone's telling you about it in a video. And then after that, of course, you bring it all home by having students connect with each other on what they think happened or what they got out of it with discussions that feel more real as a result of going through that experience. And then if you want, Blair, I'll, I'll also talk about the Omega simulation because that's that's one of your projects. And so it'd be funnier and maybe more appropriate to put on your podcast. <laughs> I think, I mean, you definitely can. And I think the, the Soul City one is an awesome example of... Um, just the team coming together and also taking technology and enhancing the learning versus just creating this really cool um, interactive thing that then we never do anything with, but it's really integrated into the course, which is uh, takes it to the next level for sure. Um, which actually, if you want to talk about Omega, it kind of does the same thing. Um, Blair had a wonderful faculty member and it was a political science class. And one of the First things they had was a, they called it a simulation and they're not wrong. It is, you kind of go in there and like put yourself in those shoes and what would you do? Um, but it was, if you can imagine uh, two paragraphs typed in a Word document, that is the simulation. Um, so the student would go into that first module, open up two paragraphs, read them, go type in information somewhere and then go do a discussion board. And that was the thing, which honestly in itself is, is pretty well done. And Blair was like, I feel like we could definitely do something with this. And I was like, we definitely can. And so this will harken back to your like Adobe Flash games or your Albino Black Sheep uh, kind of website in like the late 90s, early 2000s, where just like very simple Flash games. Uh, we created something like that. We would take it to where he, the professor, it's called the Omega Simulation. And it's basically setting up two different um kind of like competing political parties in a government that's majorly owned by one group and not the other and setting you up to say, if you're in this minority group, how are you going to like get power or get what you want to change? And so we made like a little flash game and you basically click it and an envelope opens up and that's your instructions. And then once you do that, it gives you all these choices. Like you're actually making decisions for this faction. It comes across and it says like, do you want to do open recruitment or close recruitment? Here's the benefits of this. Here's the benefits of this. And you select one. And when you hit that um, accept button, you hear like a, an audio cue of like a rubber stamp hitting it. And then you see an approved stamp come across it. And that kind of that, that physical, like you can almost feel it. And that, that feedback really makes you like engaged with it. And then there's like three or four more other little things that you can change around like social good versus attack, which would be one to focus on. Once the student finishes all of them, at the end, there's like a whole thing listing every choice you've made, and then you can sign it. And a signature will go across the screen. You'll hear somebody writing with a pen, and bam, it's done. And then the cool thing is it takes all that information that you put in there and anonymously sends it to an Excel document. And so now we have everything that you put specifically anonymously, and it fills in all these graphs on the right-hand side. So if a professor assigns this to students, they can check at the end of the week and you've got the, your entire class is set up of what percentages they fall into in different categories. And then Blair takes that or the ID could take that too and set up a really genuine 
it like it feels a real discussion board of I pick these things for these reasons, where the professor can come in and say, I noticed that only four percent of you chose this. Why does everyone think that is? And because you're both invested in the object and you have your own opinions that you kind of went through and put in there, you're more likely to kind of engage in that discussion. So that we also this is the only object we've currently got feedback for from students and from the professor, both about how preference is definitely that kind of thing versus what it was previously. So data is very little at the moment, but it's definitely coming in in a positive way to reinforce using more of these kinds of objects. Um, the thing that I, so obviously Corey and I work together if uh, you haven't figured that out, but, um, but I think what I love hearing about these multimedia coming back, it's like, I work in this on a day-to-day -day basis and the great, like being able to hear the amount of work, the collaboration that is occurring whenever we're creating these. And I think the greatest takeaway in all of this is a, the amount of collaboration that's really needed to create a really solid multimedia, but also an online course. And then also just the, it's not just the visual cues that are making these interactives engaging for students. It's also the environment you're setting up with the ambient music, the, you know, the sounds that are coming through when they're getting that approval. Um, it's a lot more than just throw it into, you know, a rise or something like that and hope that they can click through it and make it, make it good. Yeah, it's definitely, um, media needs to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like particular, like you made it on purpose. Um, you made it on purpose for a purpose, if you will, where we're not just making media. We don't just want to, I, I'm sure, I'm sure everybody listening has seen or been part of the creation of a video where you say, I'm going to explain something to you much like I would explain something to you in real life. And I'll just record myself talking about it. And something is lost. Um, you do not get the same. And we can go into this differently if you want to Blair, where you, we don't, Blair and I, Blair is a remote employee and I work in the office. So we have never met in the 18 months that we've worked together. Um, we do pretty good with that, but I can tell you that something is lost, but I can't walk over to Blair's office when I have an idea and just like throw it at her instantly. And then we brainstorm for 20 minutes and this huge thing is born. Um, sorry, that's kind of going off on a tangent, but just it, it is, I, I don't even remember what you said that made me think about this Blair, but yes. Yeah, I agree. That is, I mean, it's easy for us to chat, but it's not the same thing as just being able to take it and run with it. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, I know you have been um, in your position now for 18 months. So what would you say, and it could be one of the two um, interactives that you've made already, but what's your greatest success so far? Um, I love both of those, or I wouldn't have mentioned them. Um, I like Soul City a lot, and I like Omega Simulation a lot. Both professors were extremely responsive. The ID was great. Uh, media team really came through, and my vision kind of came together. Um, I love both of those, and I'll always use them as examples for anyone. Um, but I would say my greatest success right now is probably what we're working on. Um, that's probably my what I think will have the most impact, um, which is it's it, they're they're I, we call them interactive presentations. It's essentially a articulates rise where you're taking you're hopefully taking a lecture video that's maybe an hour and a half or someone speaking over a PowerPoint or just the PowerPoint in itself. And you're putting it into a format that's very clean, very straightforward, 
paced by the ID themselves or by me um, and has interactive elements, has knowledge checks, has embedded video, has audio clips from the professor, all these little things that make it feel like uh, the best analogy I can use is if you if you've ever been recommended a video by someone like in person, they're like, oh, you so got to watch this. It's really funny. And you're really not on board. And then you tell them you watch it later and you go home and you click that video. And the first thing you do, I guarantee every time is you look at how long that video is, maybe before you even click it. You're looking at the thumbnail and saying, this video is 42 minutes long and I wasn't that interested in the first place. I'm not clicking this. Or it's eight minutes long and you're still not clicking it because eight minutes is a lot of time commitment in your brain to something that maybe you're not that interested in. And that's what this rise does. It takes it and it can pace it out so that like even the use of a, a continue button, right? You have, you have a couple pieces and then a kind of newish section starts and you make that call where that is and you just throw in a continue button. And what does it do? It blocks you from scrolling down until you click that continue button. And so it feels like you're getting that one chunk of information and it's not too much commitment because I'm, this is all I have to do right now. If I hit continue, I could do more, but if I want to stop here, that's normal. And that's, that's kind of what we're trying to build. And that's why I feel like it's the greatest success. And to that point, uh, Blair, do you want to jump in and talk about it more? Because I just like it when you talk about it and not me. <laughs> the journal article. Yeah, so we have submitted um, a proposal for the Journal of Applied Instructional Design um, for their multimedia. It's like practice, like modern yeah. practice, current yeah. practice. And if you listen to season two, you know that my whole dissertation is about um, the ICAP framework. And so a lot of this work that we're doing of taking these lectures and turning them into interactives is trying to get these passive learning opportunities to then um, go higher to perhaps active where they're actually getting to be able to click through the, those rises and click continue or even constructive and interactive where once they go through the rises, then they go on and do something else with that. I, ideally, it would it would work out because this is this is the greatest success because you can take our, our, I would say my biggest struggle was how do I, it's not even fix a class, it's faculty aren't always necessarily um, people who have been trained um, like in pedagogy or even andragogy, um, but they are someone who is an expert in their subject matter. And so being the bridge and taking them to that next step or just doing it for them even because they're like, no, I like my subject. If you're the expert in how to teach, just tell me how to add it or change this and and we'll, and we can make it happen. I, I love that. And so it, it's really, it was really hard for a while for like the beginning of probably the whole first year I'm getting, getting, getting those lecture videos to work. Um, it always, it almost, even if you, we, we've chunked them, right? Like you have a 30 minute video and there is no room for negotiation that it can be shorter. And so you have this 30 minute video. What do you do? Well, you can chunk it into five, six minute videos you have a probably have a higher watch rate, but now you also have five videos that you're telling someone they need to click. So we're kind of getting to that numbers game again of that's a lot and coming up with the solution or basically as a team kind of figuring out the solution and testing it and having it work uh, is definitely the greatest success because it's just anytime there's a lecture video now, I can just point to rise and say, we should just make that into a rise. And, and pretty much from, from a faculty standpoint, you take, their lecture video, their PowerPoint, whatever, you take the pieces and you organize them how they would work best, you think, for teaching and engagement. And then you can send that whole thing back to the faculty member and they can kind of just go through and give you very quick feedback on 
what they would like to see and what they want changed or what needs to be in there or what doesn't. And it's done. Um, and just, just the, the, it's just, it's just great. I, I love it. Um, so that's probably what I think is the greatest success, even though it's not as bells and whistles as some of the other stuff we've talked about. That's okay though, because like you said, you're doing a huge difference in these courses, even though it's a small change. So on the flip side, what is your greatest challenge as uh, in your position? So um, I don't know if I've said this, but as the online media designer, um, I am kind of, and it's been pitched to me this way for a long time now, and it'll probably continue to be this for a long time. Uh, I was originally hired because um, we have a media department and we have an instructional design group and they need to work together, but there's not necessarily media expertise with the IDs and there's not necessarily ID expertise with media. And so they needed like a bridge. And so I've kind of been pulled over there and I would say that my biggest challenge is kind of helping those two groups get together and mostly not need me is ideal because then that's kind of like the objective anyway. And so just having to work on the ID side, but also working on the media side and kind of bringing those two groups together when they're not necessarily crossing otherwise is, is my biggest challenge. It's not like a, it's not like, a, well, I'm really working hard on, on this project or this project, but that's just, that's just when I get a project, I can just, I can just go on that really easily and just work on it and figure it out. But working with people, people is definitely my, 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 my struggle personally, because it's just something I have more difficulty with than like working on a project. That's a good one. Yeah. You almost have to have like two personalities too. <laughs> I absolutely, um, I, I have several because all the ideas are also different from each other. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit, a little bit there too. Absolutely. Um, so what do you wish you knew before, um, becoming an instructional designer or an online media designer? Before becoming an instructional designer, I wish I knew about QM and what it really was. QM, for those that don't know, is Quality Matters. Um, in my uh, master's program, I had one course that was QM certified. And I could tell you as a student then, not really knowing what that meant, just seeing the words Quality Matters, like, oh, I guess this is a better course or something. Um, I struggled in that course. It was extremely hard. Um, my professor really hounded me to have like legit responses and discussions and would severely mark me down if I just kind of wrote whatever um, to where, and by the end of it, my reflections were amazing. Um, they were like seven, eight paragraphs long on things as opposed to like three sentences just to get the grade. And so I remember being like, man, I don't wanna, I don't know about these quality matters courses. This is a lot of work. Um, and then you come into the field and when I got hired, um, like all of my, all throughout my whole degree, there's no mention of quality matters except for me taking that course. But then coming into the field, they're like, oh, well, this is this big thing that a lot of, a lot of either institutions or quality matters is very big, whether you, people use it or not that are listening. Um, and I had basically no idea what anybody was talking about when they would talk about quality matters. And, or I can tell you another one, Blair, that's maybe even bigger um, is accessibility. Being a, trying to make something really, I won't say fun, trying to make something really engaging. Um, you, when you start doing things for accessibility, not that we shouldn't, but when you focus on accessibility first, uh, you're going to reduce the engagement aspect for people that aren't using that accessibility. And so it's like a balance that you have to achieve. Of, I need to make sure that everyone can access this, but I also don't want to 
put in, I don't know, let, this is this would not be accessible, uh, a giant yellow button with red letters that says, click this for blah, 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 because it's it's immersion, right? I'm in this object that I'm immersed in it. And then you put this giant thing that is not like this object in here suddenly, and now my immersion is broken. And so my engagement is possibly reduced. So it's, it's a balancing act and I've definitely struggled with that over time, but I wish I knew more about accessibility because I'm sure I've built a lot of things, especially early in my career and in public education where um, they're definitely not accessible. And that, that yeah, so accessibility and uh, probably QM, knowing those two things, I would have been in a much better place to start. And I'm sure a lot of IDs would coming from like public education. Yeah, that's a great point, especially about um not even quality matters specifically, but just um, quality courses in general of how do we translate what that means to a student when they have no clue, like we're so obsessed with learning objectives and course objectives and making sure they're all aligned. But for a student, all they really care about is what do they, what do they need to get done? What do they need to do? And is it engaging and interactive? Um, it's, it's, it kind of comes back to UX to a degree, right? Like, what's the experience that the user's getting? Like, I know that these, everything's aligned and like, I love the way this looks all perfectly in my course template and my map looks great. And when I show this off to other faculty, they're gonna be like, wow, that looks like a really crisp course. And then when a student comes in, they're gonna click through the first eight things and not read any of them because they wanna either get started on the course or get it done, or they're here for the course, they're not here for the syllabus. So coming to that understanding of, of yeah, like what you said, even the, what do you care about versus what do I care about versus what the faculty cares about? What does Corey care about? Like all these things are, are like just juxtaposed in a way where, I mean, it's, it's difficult to figure out. Absolutely. Um, okay. So to wrap up in the first question, you said you love reading. So, because I love stealing what other people are reading and adding them to my Amazon list. What are you currently reading? Now, is this academic? Um, so currently reading The Black Company by Glenn Cook. I read a lot of uh, fantasy is usually my genre of choice, um, which is about a, like the last mercenary company and kind of like their struggles to continue to be the best mercenary company because they're, they're, they're good day, their glory days are far behind them, but they're still hanging on and kind of how do we get back to that? But everything just constantly goes wrong. So um, I'm actually rereading that so that I can read the follow-up book. Um, and they're just, it's just very, I enjoy it a lot. Um, academically, I'm also reading, uh, I'm working on Thinking Fast and Slow by uh, Michael Kahneman. Um, and then there's a book that I just got ordered through the university. I can't think of the name right now because it came out like June 22nd. Um, but it's by, it's by... McRaney. And it's, it's basically the gist is that like, why do people change their minds or why will some people never change their minds? Like what are the forces that cause that between like persuasion? So um, those kind of books also a fan of, um, I recently read power of moments, which is good. It's like, how do you recreate moments in people's lives and like make things special or like peaks. And we're actually working a bit with uh, our, our departments working to, build like a new employee experience around that. So we'll see how that goes. And then uh, also uh, You Are Not So Smart by the same guy that's doing the persuasion book. So those are kind of all the ones I'm reading at the moment or have recently read in the last month or two. Awesome. Yeah, I uh, 
I had started to read You Are Not So Smart because you had suggested it. I never finished it, but I do have it started. <laughs> um, well, what's funny is the Kahneman book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, is basically a much more cerebral version of that. So if you've read one, you're you're because all they do is they just pull the study and they say this proves this and how humans think like this because of this reason. Bam, next study. And it's just I, ad nauseum sounds bad, but it's good in this case. You just want to keep getting these studies about because it's just so it's so fascinating and it really gives you kind of like an inner look to how people think and why they do the things they do. Which I'm sure helps with your greatest challenge of working with people too. Uh, it absolutely does. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure everyone can benefit because we are a we are a very customer service industry, especially the way our department runs. With we need to get these faculty these courses built for faculty and work with them. And again, their ID knowledge may or may not be there, and so we've got to got to bridge that gap. Their media knowledge may not be there. We've got to help with that, and they come in and give us all the expertise that we don't have. So it's it's yeah, it's it's great to be able to to read up on things that you're not an expert on. Awesome. Well, thank you, Corey, for hopping on. Um, I appreciate you answering all my questions. Um, and it was great to hear about all the amazing media that you've created that enhances learning and isn't just that cool factor. If I could do a quick plug for people that are listening to this, um, if you want to talk to me either about ideas you have or if anything I've said resonates or you want to know how you would get more into this kind of stuff, absolutely uh, look me up on LinkedIn, send me a message. I'm very open to collaborate and communicate with people. Uh, my name is Corey, K-O-R-Y, Trosclair, T-R-O-S-C-L-A-I-R. Thank you for that. I You will probably get people who reach out to you. So it's actually pretty cool. I would love that because I've, I've recently, and this is again, Blair has got me into this, um, uh, connecting with more people in the like design community and other people who do this kind of multimedia learning. And it's just, it, anytime I talk to someone, it just gives me new ideas and helps me be better at my job and, and help engage students. So please reach out. And thank you, Blair, for letting me plug that. I hope you all enjoyed hearing somebody who is an instructional designer, but is actually more of a media specialist and someone who is working in these technologies that all of those job descriptions out there say you have to be able to do and use. And I hope you got some really good ideas, such as the RISE interactives that he mentioned about taking these really long lectures and breaking them up into smaller pieces and allowing students to go through at their own pace by breaking them apart using continue buttons, by putting in knowledge checks, and allowing students to just learn at their own pace. So thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to Be an Instructional Design Rockstar with Blair Stamper. I hope you enjoyed getting to hear someone else's perspective in the online learning field. Hopefully their stories were enough to inspire you and show you that you're not alone as you're going through the process of creating a course, teaching a course, or even just learning as a student in an online course. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.